Episode three, Tom Lydon and Butch Stearns with you. Very excited. Thank you for joining us. We're loving the feedback that we're getting. We're hopping right into the 1971 season after the first two episodes we've done. What jumps out at you about 1971? Well, here's the interesting thing. What I like about the podcast we're doing, we're dedicating each one to one particular season. And, Tom, I could make the argument. I don't think I'd win. But that 1971 is up there with one of the greatest seasons in the history of the NFL for a lot of reasons. I'll give you a couple of them. First of all, looks look at some unique things. Three quarterbacks taken in the draft, one, two, three, right? A defensive guy who wins the MVP the first time that ever happened. It's only happened twice, right? And then the beginning of the dynasty teams after the merger. We had the Packers before that. It looked like we might have the Colts or the Chiefs or whatever. But the Cowboys started to become a dynasty team. Yeah, and the Dolphins did, and the Steelers did. And what's interesting about the teams from the 60s is that a lot of them really just fell off the table. You look at the Packers, you look at the Browns, you look at the Chiefs, you look at the Colts. You know, once you got to the 71 season, it was definitely a changing of the guard. That's something I referenced at the end of the last podcast. You mentioned the three quarterbacks who were picked right off the top. Not bad names. Jim Plunkett, Archie Manning, and Dan Pastorini. Mm -hmm. You know, Manning, great talent. It's such a shame that he never was on a team that was a winner. But Plunkett found himself later in his career. Pastorini became involved in some of the most dramatic moments of the 1970s when he was with the Oilers and then traded to the Raiders, you know, the year that ultimately Jim Plunkett ended up quarterbacking that team. So those guys crossed paths a lot. You also mentioned the MVP, who was Alan Page, who ended up being a judge. How many football players in 2016 you think are going to go be a judge? Hmm. None. None, right? It's just, it says a lot about that. But think about it. There's so much to get into. We are going to get into a lot of that. I'll wrap up the Allen Page thought this way. The Minnesota Vikings, who finished 11-3, tied with the best record in the NFC, listen to their key offensive players in 1971. Gary Cuso and Bob Lee at quarterback. Those were their quarterbacks. They had Clint Jones and Dave Osborne at running back, and Bob Grimm was their leading receiver. I couldn't tell you anything about any of those guys, but their defense was fantastic. They had Alan Page, who was the MVP. Don't forget, this was before they kept sacks as an official statistic. And they also had Carl Eller. So Bud Grant's leadership kept the Vikings right there. But as we will see shortly, that Viking team once again suffered bitter disappointment in the postseason. Well, and also, Tom, I think you dropped the lead. The Vikings had one of the greatest nicknames ever. I mean, you had the Doomsday Defense, the Killer Bees. You had the Fearsome Foursome. You had the Purple People Eaters. Solid. Uh, I mean, come on. Solid. With fantasy football now, that's probably the name of a million teams that are out there. I thought you had a great stat, too, about the 71 season. We're going to talk to Bob Lilly, who's a Pro Football Hall of Famer. How many Hall of Famers came out of the 1971 season? You know, I give a lot of credit, and I appreciate the feedback from Drew Hall, who visited our webpage. Go to tb25.us. It bounces you over to our Facebook page where you can interact with us, share your thoughts on any given season. Drew Hall checked in. He gave me this stat, which is amazing. No other season in the history of the NFL has had more Hall of Fame players play in it. 77 players who played in 1971 ended up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Eight of them we're on the Super Bowl champion Dallas Cowboys, which kind of leads to why that team 
became a champion after this 1971 season because, as we've discussed before on the previous podcast, they were knocking on the door. They got deep in four NFL playoffs. Then they got to the Super Bowl the year before after the 1970 season and lost in heartbreaking fashion. You know, two of their Hall of Fame guys who were on the sidelines and in the office, Tom Landry and Tex Schramm, they made the commitment that 71 was the year. And they went out and got guys who had had success on other teams. They got Lance Allworth from the San Diego Chargers. They got Herb Adderley and Forrest Gregg from the Green Bay Packers. And you added those guys to Bob Lilly, who will join us later in the podcast, Mike Ditka, Mel Renfro, Rayfield Wright, Bullet Bob Hayes. And then Landry on the sideline and Tech Schramm as the president and general manager. This was one of the best teams ever assembled. And if you take away the 1985 Chicago Bears, this doomsday defense for the Dallas Cowboys, probably one of the best defenses that's ever gone through a single season in the NFL. Well, and we're going to hear Lily talk about the flex defense and why it was so unique and why it was so good. And to your point, the nickname was great, Doomsday, but they probably don't get the credit they deserve, like the 46 defense of the 85 Bears and other defenses. The thing that sticks with me about the Cowboys, Tom, you said it. You know, this is a couple years into the merger now. This is the AFC versus the NFC. But the Cowboys would have succeeded in the NBA, in my opinion, because NBA champs had to go through the attrition. You know, the Pistons had to get through the Celtics and Lakers, mm-hmm. and then the, the Bulls and Michael Jordan had to get through the Pistons. The Cowboys never got through the Packers, right? Mm-hmm. But they but they were battle-tested by the time 71 rolled around, and they were ready to take that mantle. It wasn't long-lived. They were a dynasty team in the 70s, but the Dolphins and the Steelers were ready to take them on after that. And then the Dolphins and the Steelers had to do the same thing. We'll see that as yeah. the years progress. The Dolphins knocked on the door, and they played in Super Bowl six and lost to the Cowboys, but then ultimately they win two in a row. And the Steelers couldn't get through the AFC because of the Dolphins, and then finally they break through and win two in a row. So there's a lot of great stories to be told. This is interesting. Stadiums, which were so synonymous with our memories of the NFL, opened up in 1971. And the reason they did is because when the leagues merged, there was an edict from the commissioner's office that said, all right, you can't play in stadiums that seat less than 50,000 people anymore. Mm -hmm. So the Bears went from Wrigley Field to Soldier Field. The Boston Patriots moved to Foxborough and became the New England Patriots and played in Schaefer Stadium. Candlestick Park became the new home of the San Francisco 49ers who moved from Kizar Stadium. And this year, 1971, is the year that Texas Stadium opened up and the Dallas Cowboys moved there from the Cotton Bowl. Now, Cotton Bowl didn't have capacity issues, but Texas Stadium was the vision of a mastermind, and that became one of the most iconic stadiums in the country. Well, think of what you said, and now let's think about baseball for a second, because there are a lot of people, me among them, I was coming into my teenage years now, watching baseball, and as a huge baseball fan, hating to watch baseball games in football Mm. stadiums. Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Cleveland. I mean, you had 25,000 people, if you were lucky, in 80,000-seat stadiums. It was like playing baseball in the Grand Canyon. No, recently watching the Red Sox play the A's, that's the last stadium left. The entire country. Is it really? That has a baseball team sharing its facility with a football team. When you do think back to the 70s, and they didn't all overlap, But it's funny you brought that up because I actually walked myself through this. I think ultimately the number was 15. There were 15 stadiums. They didn't all play there at the same time because the Dolphins were at the Orange Bowl and then I counted pro player stadium when the Marlins 
played there as one that qualified. But over the course of time, there were at least 15 stadiums that a baseball team played at and a football team. So let's at. talk about the Cowboys, like you said. What's interesting is we, we just set the scene. They're about to emerge. They're about to win the Super Bowl. They're about to become the, still to this day. Is this correct, Tom? The only team that won a Super Bowl without giving up a touchdown. It's the only Super Bowl where one of the teams did not score a touchdown. Even the Patriots, when they lost to the Bears, they scored one to make it 46-10, not 46-3. But like so many teams... They had a defining moment in the middle of their season. They weren't a great team for seven games. Like, for example, the 2014 Patriots on a Monday night game in week four when Tom Brady had national people saying, they're not good anymore. Brady's done. There was a parade at the end of that year because of the way they responded. The Cowboys didn't have a moment like that, but they did have a unique moment in week seven, didn't they? Very much so. And it's interesting because when we talked last week with Bill Curry, he talked about how the Baltimore Colts made it work with two quarterbacks. And they made it work with Earl Morrill. And they made it work with John. Unitas. It wasn't working with the Cowboys. And they had two guys who were talented, but one who was clearly more talented than the other. They were just trying to figure out a way to get him in there. Could Roger Staubach unseat Craig Morton? Because Morton had taken the team to the Super Bowl the previous year. Staubach had been in the Navy. He was still trying to figure out his professional sea legs, to play off the Navy pun. And finally, after seven weeks and a 4-3 and three record, Tom Landry said, we're making the move. This is the guy. And they never lost again. Well, they never looked back. They became empowered. I mean, how many times have we seen this in any sport, whether it's a pitcher that's acquired on a baseball team, whether it's a rookie that comes up and doesn't know what he doesn't know yet in any sport and just lights the world on fire? Roger Staubach, when he took over, the Dallas Cowboys became empowered, Tom. They were unbeatable. Some interesting things to touch on about this 71 season. Dallas finished 11-3 and after they started the year 4-3. and We talked about the Vikings also finishing 11-3. and very quirky rule in the NFL at the time where they didn't seed. So it wasn't as if you had a one, two, three, and four seed in the playoffs like we do now with a one through six seed. So it was just by chance that one year you'd host and then the next year you wouldn't. So the top two teams played in the first round. So Dallas goes to Minnesota. And remember, Minnesota had lost at home the previous year in that divisional playoff round to the San Francisco 49ers. And it happens again. And I think Minnesota didn't stand a chance because their strength was their defense, not the offense. And that offense, which was not very good, had to go up against the doomsday defense. Dallas forced a bunch of turnovers. Cowboys won the game 20-12. to and then they almost had a cakewalk against the Niners in the championship game. So here's game. something I'm strongly opinion about. I'm going to nitpick your words. You said the top two teams played each other. Not necessarily in my opinion. The top two seeds ended up playing each other. Not seeds because they didn't seed, right? But how many times have we seen in sports that the team that gets to the next round, who might be unheralded, but they've won a playoff game or a playoff series in another sport now. So they're, they're feeling good about themselves. So this season was unique because they didn't seed them one through four. But I'm not saying that ended up being a bad thing or a good thing because when you get to that second round, you're not playing Flotsam and Jetsam after that. I don't care where they're seeded. So we talk about teams that are earning their keep and sort of working their way up the ladder. Washington falls in that category too because they play in the next Super Bowl. They play the Dolphins in Super Bowl seven, So they're in the playoffs this year before, 1971. Right. And they have to go on the road as a wild card and play San Francisco. So San Francisco wins that game and then ultimately gets a rematch with Dallas. And this is 
the second of what ends up being five Dallas-San Francisco NFC Championship games. But this one was played at Texas Stadium, which ironically, because Dallas had gone on the road to play the Vikings in the divisional game, the first ever playoff game at Texas Stadium. And as we'll hear from Lilly, this team wasn't losing. You know, they were so focused. They knew what had to happen to get to the Super Bowl and win. In the home stadium, they weren't going to lose that one. Here's an interesting fact. The Dallas Cowboys and the Chicago Bears in 85 are the only teams to only surrender one touchdown in the entire postseason. The difference is the Cowboys didn't give up a score in the Super Bowl. The Bears did. The Bears got to Super Bowl 20, shutting out the Giants and the Rams. So these are two of the real dominant defenses. Here's another interesting thing about the Cowboys in about 1971 to me, Tom. When you say Dallas Cowboys, fill in the blank. What do you say after that? What does everybody say? Playoffs. They went to the playoffs for 20 America's years. America's team. America's team. Put you on the spot. Sorry. Right. But when you say America's team, right, this is when it was beginning. This is 1971. TV was now becoming a staple, if it hadn't already, of everybody's lives. And the NFL, with Monday Night Football now, becoming a staple. And the Cowboys had characters. They didn't have Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith and Troy Aikman yet, but they had characters. They had Walt Garrison. They had Calvin Hill. They had Dwayne Thomas. They had Roger Staubach, the guy... To me, that was pre-Tom Brady. In other words, because of his success and because he was Mr. Clean, you wanted to hate him, but you just couldn't, right? So I think that was a big part of them becoming America's team. They were in Dallas. They had the stars on their helmets. They had the whole the stadium with a hole in the roof, right? And so this is what, watch. And this is when it all began, <laughs> you know, and they became America's team, and they haven't given up that mantle. Let's go over the other side. Let's talk about the AFC and get you set up for the team that plays the Cowboys in the Super Bowl because I may have shortchanged the Colts a little bit in my so what analysis in episode two. I said the Colts fell off the face of the earth. They got back to the AFC championship game the next year against the Dolphins. It was pretty clear that the two best teams in this 1971 season in the AFC were the Dolphins and the Colts. Now they both played in the AFC East. And what I didn't realize, and I did my research for this, is how the regular season played out. Baltimore had been scratching and clawing. And then finally, after week 13, they took over first place in the AFC East. So going into that last game, the Colts, to clinch home field advantage and have that AFC championship game ultimately be hosted at Memorial Stadium, all they had to do was go out and beat the 5-8 and eight New England Patriots, led by Jim Plunkett. So it's the season finale. The Colts are home. They got a rookie quarterback coming in with a team that's not very good, and you can predict what happened. Well, yeah, the Patriots won that game, which was unbelievable, right? Patriots win. The Dolphins win, so now the Dolphins win the AFC East, and it sets up what's one of the most legendary playoff games in history, where the Dolphins and the Chiefs played in the longest game right. ever played. On December 25th, 1971, it goes double overtime. And here's this. How much do you know about Ed Podolak? Oh, my goodness. I watched him seemingly every Sunday. Like I told you, every Sunday I seemed to be there with Kurt Gowdy and Aldi Rogatis, and it was Raiders Chiefs. And Ed Podolak was a character in that ongoing play. What I remember about Ed Podolak the most is he could do everything. Well, everything. Good point, because he did everything yes. in this playoff game, a game that the Chiefs lost. And actually, the Chiefs never really came back again. But he had 350 all-purpose yards. 110 yards receiving, 85 yards rushing, three kickoff returns for 154 yards, two <laughs> punt returns for two yards. So that, not the greatest punt returner. But the game goes double overtime on Christmas Day, right. 1971, and the Dolphins beat the Chiefs 27-24. So Baltimore, 
actually got kind of lucky because of that lack of seeding and the very random nature in which they paired you in the playoffs. They got a chance to play the Browns because they couldn't play the Dolphins because they were both in the AFC East. So they actually go to Cleveland and play the Browns as the wild card and they kill them 20 to 3. But now the Colts defending world champions have to go on the road to the same place they won the Super Bowl the year before and they got to face the Dolphins. So. Let me tell a personal story that will lead back into the Dolphins. 1971, the Patriots draft Jim Plunkett. Um, I later became good friends with the legendary Will McDonough. I was one of the many people he mentored and everything. But Will was sort of led the charge. Football began, NFL football, in Boston in 1960 with the Boston Patriots. They were vagabonds. They played in Harvard Stadium. They played in Fenway Park. 1971, as you talked about with the stadiums, they got their own stadium, the first one, Schaefer Stadium. Never mind the fact that the toilets didn't work when they went down there, and there was all kinds of stories about that. But here's the point. When the Patriots drafted Jim Plunkett, even though they ended up trading him and getting several first-round draft picks that led to their success later on. Jim Plunkett was instrumental in legitimizing football in New England. This will get to the Dolphins in a second. Because he and Randy Vitaha were must-see, the rabbit. There were moments in every game where Plunkett was going to go for the home run, kid who came from the West Coast, whose parents were blind. I mean, we knew all the stories about him. And all of a sudden, the Boston Patriots became the New England Patriots, and they were New England's team. But here's the thing. We're in the conferences now with the rivalries. So you got the Patriots and Jets. You got the Boston New York thing going on, right? Joe Namath has already won a Super Bowl, but the Patriots were not legit. Now you had the Miami Dolphins and you had the legendary Colts. And the Dolphins were about to become the Dolphins. So I remember as a kid, the Patriots playing the Dolphins and thinking to myself, they're no better than the Patriots. Well, they were about to be a lot better than the Patriots. That's a good story. I like that. <laughs> Very good. So Baltimore. And Miami playing the AFC Championship game. So we talked about it a little bit during the 1970 season, the triangle between Carol Rosenblum, who was the owner of the Colts, and Joe Robbie, the owner of the Dolphins. They didn't like each other too much. And then Don Shula and Don McCafferty once again matched up. This was one of those scenarios that it seemed a year later the Dolphins were not going to blow their opportunity, and they didn't. So they beat the Colts, and they qualify for Super Bowl VI. And as it turns out, and we'll hear Bob Lilly tell the story, it was just not a good matchup for them. Football is such a game of matchups that when they went up against that Dallas team, and now that's two teams that Dallas faced in the postseason, that they were clearly the better team. It's interesting because sometimes quirky things happen and you lose those games. But they went in favorites and they killed them. Yeah, I mean, again, from a Dolphins perspective, what I find interesting about this is the next year, Tom, let's not steal our thunder for the 72 show, but they're about to go to the undefeated season. So, again, to the point about attrition, what we we're doing, you're going to end up with the Dolphins and the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. And guess what? Both teams became battle-tested for the rest of the decade because of the attrition they went through to get here. Let's take a break. We'll hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to hear from Bob Lilly. And what I love about these early interviews that we're doing with the old years is that these guys are a little bit older. You know, so they have very vivid memories of oh, yeah, their they time having played. And that's what amazes me most. I mean, Bob Lilly will tell you kind of the logistics about how this interview came together at the end, but the stories he told and the recall that he has is just absolutely fantastic. So stay where you are. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Bob Lilly.
its high-strength military-grade aluminum alloy body to its high-strength steel frame, the Ford F-150 is a wake-up call for every full-size truck out there. This is a truck like never before, so you can work like never before. The game-changing Ford F-150 with greater towing and payload capacities and best-ever ride, handling, and braking. Every other truck is history. Experience F-150 at your New England Ford dealers. Ford trucks built Ford Tough. Everybody's got a to-do list. Drop off the dry cleaning, pick up some milk. Here's an idea. Let's add save hundreds of dollars on car insurance to that list. And the good thing is you don't have to drop off or pick up anything. All you have to do is go to geico.com and in 15 minutes, you could be saving 15% or more on car insurance. Extra money in your pocket? It just may be the most rewarding to-do you do today. So we're talking about the 1971 NFL season. The Dallas Cowboys are going to end up playing the Miami Dolphins in the Super Bowl. And we're about to talk to Bob Lilly. And, Tom, I've told you this ad nauseum, but I grew up as a Cowboys fan. It was a long story, but I had a subscription to Cowboys Weekly. And these were my guys. They were bigger than life. Walt, I was a running back. I saw Walt Garrison and Calvin Hill were my guys. But I loved Leroy Jordan. I loved everybody on that defense. And Bob Lilly was one of them. Listen, Bob Lilly at this point, is going into his 11th season. He was drafted by two teams, as a lot of good players were in the 1960s. He was drafted by the Cowboys in 1961, but he was also drafted by the Dallas Texans, who ended up being the Kansas City Chiefs in 1961. He chose the NFL route. He played with legendary coach Tom Landry. You can understand why he threw his helmet 25 yards down the field when they lost to the Colts in Super Bowl V because that's how passionate of a guy he was. 11 times a pro bowler, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1980 in Super Bowl VI. What he's most remembered for was a 29-yard sack of Bob Greasy, who was a little slippery, a little bit like Fran Tarkenton right. running around back there, and Bob Lilly ran him down. At one point, this guy played in 196 consecutive regular yeah, season Iron games. Man. 196! And the Sporting News has called him the greatest defensive tackle in NFL history. We have to thank his wife, Ann. And he's been married to Ann since 1974. When we set up these interviews, a lot of times we're working through a third party. The third party in this case was Ann, and she was such a total sweetheart. She helped set it up for us, and it was our pleasure to talk to the one and only Bob Lilly. We greatly appreciate you being here. And I think a big portion of that 1971 Cowboys story comes from how you got there. When you think about how that team built itself to the point where it was finally able to win a championship, why don't you walk us through what the process was, how this team kept knocking on the door, couldn't get through, and then you finally got there? Well, the history, the history of the Cowboys goes way back as far as I'm concerned, but we had an opportunity, if you recall, in 1966, we played Green Bay in Dallas for the NFC Championship to go to the first uh, Super Bowl. And we were on the one-foot line, and one of our offensive linemen moved, and we got a five-yard penalty. And on the second play, Don was going to throw the ball, and I think one of the linebackers from Green Bay hit his arm, and it was intercepted. And so we we failed. So the next year was the Ice Bowl. We failed. And the next two years we were in playoffs, we failed. The next year we finally went to the Super Bowl, we played against uh, Baltimore. And we had a lot of things go against us in that game, but really we weren't prepared to go to play in the big ball game. We had never been in a game like that. We had been in playoff games every year, but the Super Bowl was, was super. Exactly, 
exactly what it sounds like. It, it was super. Everybody you ever knew was calling and wanted tickets, and people were calling us at night, and people were trying to come up and see us at the room, and our all of our families wanted to go down to the Super Bowl, and we had chaos. And so we were very distracted for that Super Bowl five, and we did lose the game 16 to 13. But after that game, we got together and we made our minds up that we were going to leave no stone unturned going into the 1971 season. And we were determined that we were going to go to the Super Bowl and win it. And it started that way in our off-season practice. We had a, about 95% attendance every day uh, for weightlifting and all the th- running and all the things that we did. And so we went on into the season that way. We didn't start out really fast. I think we lost a couple of games uh, in the first half, maybe maybe three. Uh, Roger took over that year, Roger Staubach, which I think was very instrumental. Uh, he was a born leader. I mean, he, he was a born leader and a trained leader by being in the Naval Academy four years. And then he served in the U.S. Navy for four years after that. And when he came to the Cavaliers, he had been coming to our training camp during the four years that Roger was was in the service. Uh, when he got his leave, he brought his wife, and they came to Thousand Oaks, and he spent two weeks of two days for his vacation. <laughs> so anyway, kind of we kind of had a lot of admiration for him when he got there. But anyway, he fought Craig Martin to to become the starting quarterback that year, and. Uh, we went on after the middle of the season and won every game, and uh, Roger was a big part of that. Your defense ultimately earned a nickname. Only the greatest defenses in NFL history earned nicknames. Your defense was called the Doomsday Defense. Walk people through how your defense worked. Coach Landry, uh, he was a he and Lombardi were both coaches for the New York Giants when when uh, Lombardi went to Green Bay in '59, and Coach Landry came to Dallas in 1960. Both of them were called. One of them was Coach Landry was the head defensive coach. They called him the head defensive coach of the New York Giants. And Coach Lombardi was called the head offensive coach for the New York Giants. And anyway, their philosophies were kind of totally different. Coach Landry was really futuristic on offense, and Coach Lombardi was pretty basic on offense and pretty futuristic on defense. But Coach Landry was such a great teacher. And we had been able to play the run pretty well throughout probably the third or fourth season that I was there until I finished, and even on beyond that, the defense had. And so what happened, we we played a flex defense, which was an unusual defense. It was not not really like any other uh, defense in the NFL at the time. And it was a keying-type defense. You You weren't just rushing through the line and hoping to make a play. You actually knew where you were supposed to be according to the formation and then we got help from Leroy because when we were down in our stance we couldn't see what the backs were doing or what the wide receivers you know where they were shifting to or from and Cornell Green also he was he was our strong safety was also calling out uh, the defense according to the offense according to the shifts and so forth so we had changes just like quarterbacks change up their audibles uh, on defense, Leroy was our quarterback for 
our defensive line. Take us back to week seven. You had one of those unique situations in sports where you had two very good quarterbacks and Roger Staubach and Craig Morton. And a lot of people say, you know, when you have two good quarterbacks, you don't have one really good one. But you guys, again, had a unique situation. But what happened when Roger took over? Take us back to that. Why did you seem to become empowered after that? What happened was that they were alternating quarterbacks. I don't know if you recall that, but they were beginning to alternate Roger and, and Craig. It was causing a big faction among our teammates because, you know, people. some people ran around with one and some the other, and it was not a, a good situation. So the captains of the team, of which I was one of that year, uh, we went in and talked to Coach Landry. We had about four or five of us, actually. We discussed it. We said, you know, we... We just need one quarterback to be out there leading us because it's creating a dissension among teammates. So anyway, the next Monday, he, that, was the, that would have been the, right after the seventh game, he came in and he said, we're going to make a change at quarterback. We're going to start Roger Staubach. You know, he kind of told Craig, he said, you've done a good job, Craig, and we're just going to make this change. And that happened, and Roger was a great leader. He was funny, and yet he, was, he worked. Harder, he would run Bob Hayes' races. In other words, he would challenge him to 40-yard dashes, and he would finally wear Bob out where Bob didn't want to run anymore. And Roger would beat him and said, I got you. And, I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. And he, he, whoever would stay out there with him, and Drew Pearson just happened to be one of those guys that did. And Drew stayed out all year with him. In fact, for two years, they, they played back and forth for an hour after practice. And... I think that's why Drew never did get very big. Roger liked to kill him running, running him up and down the field. But they practiced all the time, running all kinds of routes and all that. Really improved Roger's passing, although he was a pretty good passer anyway, but it really improved his timing. Let me ask you this. When, I, when you look at the 1971 roster, what jumps out at me is the fact that you had eight players who ended up in the Hall of Fame and then two executives, Tom Landry and Tex Schramm, who ended up in the Hall of Fame. And some of these guys were added late. You know, you get Lance Allworth who comes in, Herb Adderley who comes in, Forrest Gregg who comes in. But I would guess when you're a team like you were at the time, Tex Schramm said, we are going to do whatever it takes to get this championship. And if we need some veteran guys who've been there before, that's what we're going to do. So no matter how big their role was on the field, how important was it? to add some of those Hall of Fame caliber guys to the locker room that year, the Allworths, the Greggs, and even Ditka being there, and Adderley, guys who had been there and in through the wars and knew what it took to win. Well, of course, Herb and Forrest Gregg had been in the championships forever. Forrest, he went to SMU, and I, of course, I was in, he was a little bit ahead of me. I watched him mostly when I was in high school play, and he was a great player. I think Vince Lombardi called him one of the best offensive linemen he'd ever coached. He could play either guard or tackle. He was a starting tackle for Green Bay, but when the guard was hurt, he could move over to guard and do an all-pro job there. I mean, he was just a great player. Herb Adderley and I were, I think, drafted in the same year. He was drafted by Green Bay and me by the Cowboys. Herb was one of their stars, and when he came to the Cowboys, he added, they added an air of confidence that we didn't have. Anyway, Forrest Gregg, you know, he, he came to training camp and he came, he was there during the season. He, he kept telling our defensive linemen, or he kept telling our defense, he said, you guys have a great defense. He said, they shouldn't even be scoring on you all. He built us up. I mean, he was, you know, he later became a coach, but 
he was really pumping us up, and so we got to thinking we were pretty good. <laughs> so <laughs> it helped a lot. He not only did that, but he showed some of our offensive linemen better techniques than I think they had. And I think that was a big help also for our offense. But Lance did come to the Cowboys also that year. He was really polished. I played against him in Arkansas whenever I went to TCU. And, of course, he was, he was a great running back. That's what he played at Arkansas. But he went to San Diego and became a great receiver, Hall of Fame receiver. And I think he, he really probably helped some of our younger receivers. His routes were very, very smooth, and he ran them almost perfectly. Ray Berry was our wide receiver coach for a while before he became the coach at the Patriots. And he also taught them a lot about running the perfect route. I think Lance added a lot, and we did make some good additions. Tex was right. We probably needed a little help. But uh, we were pretty bound and determined anyway. Bob, take us back to Super Bowl six and the key to winning that game. They had a great team. I, w I do not want to take anything away from the Dolphins. They, they had the, probably the best team we had seen on film all year, and it was pretty consistently that way. Their running game was awesome, probably the best running game in modern football. They ran the ball like 65% of the time in some games and threw the ball like maybe 40%, sometimes even 35%. They, they ran uh, several formations, but basically, what they liked to do was run. And the flex defense was specially designed by Coach Landry in the 50s to stop the run. And so what we worked on all week was, you know, we had to watch out for Mercury Mars, we had to watch out for Kick and Zonka, and they didn't pass a lot, so we didn't, we didn't see a really spectacular passing game. <clears throat> Although they did have Howard Pooley and they had uh, a guy that we had met in Cleveland many times that we knew was great was Paul Warfield. But uh, I think what happened in that game was we shut their run down and then they had to start passing. And we had a really good secondary with Adderley and Mel Renfro and, and we had uh, uh, Cornell, of course, back in the secondary. Chuck Howley was another one that was, should he got MVP the year before in a losing game, the only player that ever did it. If you looked at the film, you would have thought he probably should have gotten it in Super Bowl six. But Roger got, got the call. Like most games, Super Bowls have big plays that ultimately make the biggest of differences. What, in your mind, was the big play that made the biggest difference in Super Bowl six? They weren't what you call a, uh, you know, a 99-yard run to win the game or something. But Walt Garrison went in with the broken collarbone and he pulled guys around he would drag them for a first down and we would have a first down and roger would throw a short pass and we would get a first down and and that, this went on and we you know we did score a touchdown and i think uh lance allworth scored a touchdown and they had one shot they they had in the first half which would have probably made the game a lot different Bob Greasy did throw a really good pass to Paul Warfield. They were both watching Warfield. Mel Renfro was on him and so was Cornell. And Cornell saw him start breaking down the field and Cornell turned to go after him to help Mel Renfro and he slipped, but he got up and he ran, ran, ran. And Cornell's about 6'5", was an All-American in basketball. He jumped up probably four or five feet off the ground and barely tipped the ball, which went off Warfield's hands. Otherwise, it was a touchdown. That would have probably brought the score up. We would have been 10 and them 7, I think. 
But anyway, it was a spectacular play, and there were just people making plays like Chuck Cowley picked up a fumble. I knocked the ball out of Zonka's hand one time, and we recovered it. We held them on defense. We, we held them with the run. We held them to no passing. So they, what they did, they got a, a three points out of the game, and we won the game. But our offense played well. They controlled the ball pretty well. Dwayne Thomas, Calvin Hill had a broken toe. He ran pretty well, even though he had a broken toe. And our offense did a very good job of blocking their defensive line, which was they had a good defense. They had a good football team. At the end of the game, I mean, I saw this later in life, but I got a DVD that had all the commercials taken out, and at the end of the game, they were interviewing people, and they interviewed uh, Coach Shula. And he said, well, if you ever wanted to see a defense play a near-perfect game, that's as close as you'll ever get. That was quite a compliment, wow. I'll tell you. I wanted to ask you about your offensive backfield. You mentioned how good the Dolphins were with Kick, Sanka, and Mercury Morris, but every day in practice, you went against Paul Garrison, Calvin Hill, and Dwayne Thomas. I mean, that's as good a backfield as the Dolphins had, isn't it? Well, it, yeah, I think it would have been pretty close uh, to as good a backfield. Dwayne had, had a peculiar attitude that year. He didn't talk, and he was late a lot for meetings. He just uh, wasn't happy, but he was there, and he played well. Garrison was a tough cookie, and he could, he could get the yardage for it. He was beat up a little bit. Calvin was beat up a little bit. We were hoping that we could would could run the ball, and we did. And those guys just gutted it up, and they did it. Roger, of course, ran the ball a little bit too, and he also kept people busy chasing him while he was looking for a receiver. We had an equivalent of four running backs in the backfield with Roger. You know, it's interesting to compare eras, but when you think of all the championships that the Cowboys won over the years, your championship in 71, and then again in 77, and then the three that were won in the 1990s. Do you all have a fraternity now? Do you compare each other's teams? Are you still competitive with each other and try to compare the teams? <laughs> Roger is very competitive, and he would love to go out there and play again right now. Anytime he gets an opportunity when we have a function with the new Cowboys, or if Drew Pearson's around, he gets them out to run and pass routes, and he's throwing the ball, and takes his shirt off, and, and he pumps iron every day, and he... <laughs> I think he's ready, waiting for a call from Jerry. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he is—he's uh, ready. I mean, he's got a good arm. I'm, I'm not kidding. So there is, there's a little bit of it I, between Rogers. Now the old broken-down lineman like me and the rest of us, we wouldn't want to compete with anybody. I tell you, <laughs> <laughs> we'd rather watch and clap and cheer for him. But Roger has got it, and Drew Pearson's got it. I'll tell you, Didka's probably got it. No one, no one Bob, I want to ask you about Coach Landry. You know, I think any football fan knows the fedora, knows how stoic and the statuesque image that he was. What made Coach Landry so special? Well, his knowledge of the game, he had a great character and integrity. And if he told you something, you could write it down in stone because that's what that's the way it would be. And, you know, he didn't joke around. And he wasn't a funny guy. Roger was pretty much that way, except Roger had a great dry sense of humor. I mean, he... He was always coming up with quips. You know, Coach Landry was pretty much all business, but we all loved him and we respected him because he was totally honest. And we we had our meetings every week, every Monday or Tuesday when we would watch the game film. And we'd all get wrecked over the coals, no matter whether we had a great game or not. <laughs> so it was a team effort. Leroy Jordan, I think, gave him the highest compliment that I've ever heard. And Leroy said, if Coach Landry had a coach our defense, all the time, instead of 
fooling with the offense and you know all of it. We'd had a, a lot of games that we'd have never been scored on. And he said, uh, probably some some seasons we wouldn't have been scored on, you know, which is impossible. Leroy, he played under Bear Bryant. Uh, that's quite a quip about Coach Landry, him telling all of us in these years, even today, he said, well, probably seasons where we didn't get scored on. That's how bright he was. He was that smart at that defensive football. Sure is. Well, Bob, listen, we're going to let you go. You don't have to take the time to do things like this, but we certainly appreciate it. And I know that the fans well, listening. I, I hope you got enough that you can. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. You kidding? We're going to make it work. And we love hearing the stories. Okay. So thank you so yeah. much. And thanks to your beautiful wife, Anne, who you've been married to for so long, who was so nice to us getting this set up. And it was really a thrill talking to you. Well, thank you. It was nice talking to you all. Thank you, Bob. Okay. Bye-bye. Again, such a thrill to talk to these guys, and they're going to be different. You know, as we go down the road here and talk to guys who are more our contemporaries, they're going to be more fast-paced, perhaps. But the memories, whew, unbelievable how incredible his memory is. Well, he asked him one question, and he talked for like 10 minutes. It was he crazy. went on about the 1971 season. And then, of course, when we interviewed him, you don't hear this in the podcast, his phone kept dropping out. So I think he's still talking, Tom. I really do. Yeah, we, we're going to take you a little bit behind the curtain here. We had to use three different phone numbers just because we had some connection issues. And, and I don't know exactly why that happened, but an incredibly gracious guy who truly, I think, enjoyed talking to us he was a guy who was fulfilled you know that talk about a career that's fulfilled a lot like John Elway when he won the championships towards the end of his career he would have been I hate to say it because I love him he's a great player but a Dan Marino or a Jim Kelly guys who had great great careers but never won the Super Bowl Bob Lilly is in that category of John Elway who stuck with the team had been there so many times before, but won the title. And he, to me, is the signature guy of that Super Bowl 16 because that's the one who really, really, really fought for the ring for so many years. Well, in our previous episodes, the three guys we've talked to now, Jerry Kramer, Bill Curry, and now Bob Lilly, you just mentioned it, the two things that strike me and both of us are, A, the, how vivid their memories are and how much they enjoy talking about it. And you would think that after all these years, they're tired of the stories. They love reliving this. All right, as we go, some vital reminders. I want you to please, please, Please like our Facebook page. You can get there immediately through our website, tb25.us. That's TB for Tom and Butch, 25 for Fox 25. And also spread the word. We really need you to do this. If you like what you're hearing, please tell other people about the podcast. And of course, we want you to interact with us on the Facebook page. Share with us little tidbits like Drew Hall did telling us about the 77 Hall of Famers who played in the 1971 season. We got a ton of stories. We got ideas that we want to share with you. And if you're listening through iTunes or Stitcher, what I've learned is that it's really important and really helpful to us if you give us a review. Obviously, the more positive reviews, the better for everybody. We've got a ton of stories to share. We've got a lot of people we want to interview. So please help us out along the way. We'll have some fun. And then it sets up our final little segment here, which people have said they like. So what? What's your takeaway from the 1971 season? So what? What's it all about, Butch? Well, you say so what, people like it. Your wife likes it. Does that count? That counts. That, okay. My sister likes it, too. There you go. Any other family members? That, that <laughs> they like all it. love it. Here's my so what. Super Bowl six, Cowboys over the Dolphins 24-3 played where? New Orleans. For the second time of a Super Bowl, which meant that only six Super Bowls in, the NFL decided, hey, New Orleans is a pretty good place for a Super Bowl. So why, after 50-some-odd Super Bowls, now going on 51, do they have this business model? I understand the logic of it. You build a stadium, you get a Super Bowl. Where are we going next? Chattanooga, Tennessee? The Super Bowl should only be in three places, in my opinion, <laughs> Can I Tom. guess? Yeah. All right, Miami, New Orleans, L.A. 
Wrong. Miami, oh. New Orleans, and Las Vegas. Oh, baby. Have the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. Are you kidding me? They learned. They did it right. It's been there many times since. I don't know why they go to these other places. It's stupid. So what for me is this. The 1971 season, just like the two prior to it, you have a team that's filled with vim and vinegar coming out of the season. And it's going to affect the 1972 season. Just like the Colts were a team of redemption that won Super Bowl V. Just like the Cowboys were a team of redemption and won Super Bowl VI. The Dolphins are a team of destiny and redemption. And as we get into the next episode, we'll hear how that bitter disappointment from getting clocked by the Cowboys made them even stronger. So that's the end of episode three. I'm Tom. I'm Butch. Thank you so much for listening. That's TB25, A History of Football.